Good to see you guys today. Good to see those of you who are online. I know that we missed you last week, and I heard some emails from some folks like, wow, we hated not being there, and uh, so we're glad that you're back with us and part of our global community, our uh, community that's uh, throughout the United States. Welcome, welcome, welcome to everyone who's in uh, the seats here. Ronnie, who did uh, the announcements here, has some other announcements. Ronnie's all things coffee, hospitality. So many of you have engaged with Ronnie just because of his role here at Fairfax and the personality that God has given him. He's got some announcements today, so take a look at this. Hey Fairfax, Ronnie here. It is official. We have now been back in person for a year. It is so awesome. Whether you've been with us for a while or whether this is your first time here, we'd love to connect with you. So if you're online, click the button above. If you're here visiting us in the seats, stop by the new here table on the way out. We would love to get connected. Summer groups are winding down, but fear not, we'll be forming new groups for the fall starting at the end of this month. To find out more information, you can go to our website or again, stop by the table and see us on the way out. If you're visiting us in person, you may have noticed a few changes this weekend. I hope you found your seat because we're not taking you there anymore and registration is no longer required. So if you're not here this weekend, but you are planning, just come on in. You don't need to register and that includes Fairfax Kids. And remember, masks are optional starting this weekend. What an amazing week we just wrapped up with Camp Grow here at Fairfax. Both of my kids were junior counselors and I loved seeing them connect with the little kids in the morning, serving the community in the afternoon and worshiping in community at night. We have an awesome opportunity for you parents of preschoolers with Game Point Camp coming up on the 19th through the 23rd. It's a sports camp. We have plenty of room. Go on our website and register now. Hey, if you're here in the blue seat, stop by and see me in the coffee shop after. I would love to share with you some coffee from our new partner, Weird Brothers Roasters. That's all from me. I'm going to turn it over to Rod, who's going to kick off a new series on Revelation. Love you, Fairfax. We'll see you soon. All right, let me just ask you, how many were here last week for the outdoor service? Can I just see your hands? Wasn't that awesome? That was fantastic. The weather... Uh, Worked out, it didn't rain, it wasn't 100 degrees, a lot of people were there, it was really, really cool. If you missed it, or if you were there and you just want a little reflection on uh, what that was all about, take a look at this video. Yeah, can we give it up for that? That was really a cool week. As Ronnie said, that uh, was our one-year anniversary of when we started meeting back together. We'd met online for four months, and then we started meeting back together a year ago, July 4th weekend, and that was kind of our one-year anniversary. And I just want to say thanks to, I got a lot of thanks uh, to give today. Thanks to all of those who made that weekend happen. All the volunteers, all the staff did an amazing job. It was a lot of extra moving parts, and uh, it was just really cool and great to uh, be together. And then uh, Ronnie mentioned Camp Grow. So Camp Grow 
this week. Uh, Camp Grow is a cool name uh, of Vacation Bible School, so we can't call it Vacation Bible School, so we call it Camp Grow because it's a much cooler name, but it's Vacation Bible School. And it happened this week, and it was amazing. It was amazing. I saw so many kids we hadn't seen in a long time, parents that we hadn't seen in a long time. Our children's ministry, our kids' ministry did an absolutely uh, incredible job leading that. Uh, Our student ministry, our leaders, our staff, fantastic. But I just want to say a special word about our students. Um, Our students, uh, actually fifth grade through 12th grade, were the counselors, were really the one that were working with the kids, and in many respects, like ran the camp. And I just got to tell you, I've never been prouder of our students than just watching them lead. And um, the kids that we are raising up here, I mean, they love Jesus. Uh, they are they're smart. They're, they're gifted. They are respectful. They are committed. They are passionate. Um, I mean, what God is doing in the life of our student ministry is absolutely amazing. And I know that some of you are parents of students and you're thinking right now, who are you talking about? Uh, I'm talking about your kids. They were absolutely amazing. And God is at work raising up a new generation in this place. And we should just celebrate that. So cool. So cool. All right. So we're starting a new series this weekend on the book of Revelation. And I know that the book of Revelation freaks some of you out because of all of the symbolism and all of the imagery and all that. Actually, Revelation, people either are freaked out by it and they avoid it at all costs, or they're obsessed with it, and it's the only book in the Bible that they read. And so I want you to actually not be either of those, to not avoid it and not be obsessed with it, but to really understand it. And I'm really excited about doing this series. I'm excited for a couple of reasons. I'm excited because in October, we're taking a group from the church, about 25 people, and we're going to go to the location where this letter was written, the seven churches of Revelation. There are seven churches that the letter of Revelation was written to that are now in modern-day Turkey, and we're going to go on a tour. We're going to visit all of those seven cities, all ruins, and so there's really not new stuff that's been like built up over it. It's going to be an incredible tour, and I know that only a few people can do that. I think we have like 25 that are going on. It's going to be an amazing trip, but I wanted to actually take us all of us as a congregation, kind of through a journey of revelation and to talk about the message that Jesus sent to those seven churches and to all of us, to every generation since then. And we did a series, actually, I did a series two years ago, August, actually, two years ago, Uh, And you say, why are we doing it so quickly again? One of the reasons that we only did it for four weeks, and I just felt like we didn't do the book justice. And so we're going to spend two months on the book of Revelation, eight weeks on the book of Revelation. It still won't be enough time really to do it. We'll have to move through it pretty quickly. There's 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, and so we'll be kind of averaging about three chapters a week. But hopefully it will kind of give you an introductory survey overview of the book that will help you then in your own study of Revelation. I encourage you to read through it as we're going through it, but then also when we're done to to go in a little bit deeper in a study. So there's three important things that you have to understand about Revelation 
if you're going to get anything out of it. And that's what I want to spend a lot of time on today. Because if you don't understand these three things about Revelation, you'll just kind of be lost in, and it will just be intimidating as you try to read it. The first thing you have to understand is that it's a letter. It's a letter just like the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth or the church in Philippi or the church in Ephesus, the letters that he wrote to those churches. This is a letter that John wrote based on a vision that Jesus gives him to a specific group of people at a specific time who are going through a specific set of circumstances. And in this case, as I said, it's seven churches that are located in what is now modern-day Turkey who are going through incredibly difficult persecution, like hardships that we can hardly imagine. And the book starts out this way, and it starts out, I know that, again, Revelation can be intimidating, and you get into all the imagery, and we'll be dealing with all of that imagery and symbolism and all of that, but it starts out just like you would expect a letter to start out. Chapter one, verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. John's the one that received this vision, who testifies to everything that he saw. You know, John basically saw things, heard things, wrote down what he saw, wrote down what he heard, and passed it on to the seven churches. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And then it kind of formally begins. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, seven spirits just talking about the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. We just sang about that to him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and father. It's the gospel, like the essence of revelation is that it is the declaration of the gospel to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Now, the reason that it's so important to understand this is a letter that is written to a specific group of people at a specific time who are going through a specific set of circumstances is because when we interpret the letter, it keeps us from, those of us who are living in the 21st century, it keeps us from interpreting the letter in a way that it simply could not have been interpreted by the original audience that received it in the first century. So in other words, if you read Revelation and the interpretation that you come up with is that the locusts that are mentioned in chapter 9 represent Apache helicopters, and the mark of the beast in chapter 13 represents the secret chips the government's putting in the arm of everyone who gets the COVID vaccine so they can be controlled and tracked like you probably are misinterpreting what the book of Revelation is all about. If you interpret the book of Revelation in a way that only makes sense to someone living in the 21st century, then everyone else who read it, the original audience, the people reading it in the 5th century, the 12th century, the 18th century, if it only makes sense 
because of what's going on in the 21st century than all of these other people who would have been going through all of their own difficult experiences. They would have had to read Revelation and say, this has nothing to do with us. This has to do with some people living out there in the future. God doesn't have anything to say to us through this book. Think about it. How cruel would it be for God to give a message to these churches who are going through incredible persecution and it have nothing to do with what they're actually going through? Like that doesn't make any sense whatsoever because scripture is the timeless authoritative word of God, which means that it has to be relevant to every generation that reads it. That for scripture to be scripture, it has to be relevant to those who heard it for the first time in the first century, those who heard it in the fifth century, in the 12th century, in the 18th century, and in the 21st century. It makes no sense whatsoever. It can't be irrelevant for 2,000 years. It's like, oh, that's irrelevant, that's irrelevant, that's irrelevant, that's irrelevant. And then suddenly, in 2021, it becomes relevant because of something going on in the Middle East or something going on somewhere in the world. Say, oh, 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 that's what Revelation is about. It's about what's going on there. It's what's going on in this part of the world or that part of the world. But it's been irrelevant up to this point. Now it makes sense. No, no, no. Scripture makes sense to every generation. The timeless, authoritative word of God, the core message, even though there are specific circumstances that are being addressed to the original audience, the message makes sense to every generation. So what was this specific group who received this letter going through? Well, Revelation, according to uh, most commentators, was written around 96 AD, about three decades after about three decades of incredibly intense persecution. And that's all after like the rapid expansion of the church. Remember, we just got through the study of Acts. And so you go through the study of Acts and you see the church expanding and growing and new churches getting started and thousands of people coming to Jesus. And yes, they faced persecution, but it was limited persecution basically that was, that was put upon them by religious leaders, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It wasn't like cultural persecution. It wasn't like governmental persecution. But now, after the expansion of the church, now we go through this 30-year period where the church goes through this intense governmental persecution that they face. In 65 AD, Nero launches this wave of governmental persecution against the church where the full force of the Roman Empire comes down on followers of Jesus. In 67 AD, Vespian becomes emperor and intensifies that persecution. He would dip Christians in oil and use them as human torches. Followers of Jesus were in prisons. They were, they were fed to the animals. They were brutalized in every way. In 70 AD, some of you know your church history, you know kind of cultural history, you know that in 70 AD, that was when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, burnt to the ground, and according to church tradition, that was the year that Paul and Timothy and Peter all were publicly executed. And then in 92 AD, Domitian came to power and ordered all of the citizens of Rome to worship him as God. And so he set up 
temples to himself and people were expected to go into the temple and get some incense and throw it onto the fire and say not what we said just a little bit ago and what we saying that Jesus Lord but to say Caesar is Lord so you can imagine for followers of Jesus who were declaring that Jesus was Lord as they would declare that Jesus was Lord rather than Caesar is Lord. They were seen as being not nationalistic enough, not patriotic enough, not supportive enough of the country, of the, of the, of the empire, and that put their lives in jeopardy. Now, two things uh, before we move on. One is that I think we tend, in Western culture, and especially in the United States, we tend to use the term persecution in a way that I really think cheapens the meaning of it. And I, and I know what people are talking about when they say that. Yes, sometimes our preferences and our beliefs as followers of Jesus are not reflected in the broader culture. Yes, sometimes our preferences and our beliefs as followers of Jesus are not reflected in the law or not reflected in government or whatever it is. And yes, if you want to call that persecution, you can call that persecution. But what the first century church was experiencing was a totally different kind of persecution. What followers of Jesus in the 21st century in other parts of the world are experiencing is a totally different kind of persecution. So you can call that stuff persecution if you want to, but we're talking about a totally different kind and different level of persecution. Secondly, all of us face temptation to compromise our faith, right? Because it goes against the flow or the momentum of culture. And it's hard. It's hard when there's something that you understand to be biblically true and it flies in the face of culture. And that's happening probably more and more. And you just, it raises questions. You go, well, can this be right when so many other people in culture see it another way? And maybe I need to rethink this biblical faith. Maybe I need to rethink what scripture says because, because culture kind of sees it this way. And most of my friends see it this way. And most of the people around me see it this way. And it's really, really tempting. When biblical faith goes in the face of the momentum of culture to not kind of walk away a little bit from biblical faith, faith or compromise a little bit your biblical faith. But the temptation to compromise their faith that these followers of Jesus experienced was on a whole other level. Think about it. In our culture, like you can be a follower of Jesus in our culture and be rich. Like lots of people who love Jesus and have lots of resources and lots of money. You can be a follower of Jesus in our culture and have power. Lots of people who are really sincere in their faith and follow Jesus and they have lots of influence and lots of power, economic power, political power, uh, especially living in a place like, you know, the Washington DC area, lots of followers of Jesus, our church, lots of people in our church, they have lots of power, economic power, political power. You can be a follower of Jesus, have lots of Power. You can be a follower of Jesus and own a company. You can be a follower of Jesus and be the lead of a department. You can be a follower of Jesus and start your own business and it be wildly successful. All of that can happen, even though you're a follower of Jesus. But that was simply not true for those churches that this letter was written to. To follow Jesus was to be poor forever. 
It was to be locked out of the economic system. It was to be locked out of the political power structure of the day. It was to be hounded and marginalized and misrepresented and brutalized and, and never experienced justice for any of that. It meant putting your life on the line on a regular basis and quite possibly being killed for your faith. Think about how tempting it would be in that scenario. You know, we, we get tempted, right? Just going a little bit against culture and going, oh, most of people think about it this way and now you know, maybe I should rethink. Like we get tempted. Think about how tempting it would be in that situation, in that scenario to walk away from your faith. And since this intense persecution had been going on for over 30 years, it meant that for all of the young adults in the church, everyone 30 years of age or younger, this is all they had ever known. This is just what it meant to follow Jesus. It just, to follow Jesus just meant you were poor forever. To follow Jesus just meant that you were locked out of the economic system. To follow Jesus just meant that you were locked out of the power structure and having influence. And it meant being hounded and slandered and all. It's just what it meant to follow Jesus. So it's amazing. And these churches were made up primarily of young adults. It's, it's amazing that so many of them did not walk away from their faith and stayed true to Christ. So first you have to understand that Revelation is a letter written to a specific group at a specific time dealing with specific circumstances. Secondly, you have to understand that Revelation is a book that cannot be read chronologically. If you try to read Revelation as a series of linear events that happen one after the other, you will be completely and totally confused. Like it will not make sense. And some of you maybe have read through Revelation and, and you go, this doesn't make any sense because I read and then this bad stuff happens and then like God wins and it's like awesome. And then all of a sudden this bad stuff happens. You go, well, when did this new bad stuff happen? And did that happen after Jesus wins? And, and like if you try to read it as a chronological kind of linear event, you'll just be totally confused. You have to think about Revelation as a series of windows that allows you to keep looking at the same reality from a different perspective. So the question you have to ask when you read Revelation and you're reading through it, the question you have to ask is not what happens next. The question you have to ask is what does John see next? Not what, does ha what happens next, but what does John hear next? Because what you have is a series of windows where John sees something or he hears something. And what he sees or what he hears next is not something that chron chronologically follows what he just saw or what he just heard. It's just another perspective, another window through which to view the same reality. So that's the second thing. You can't read Revelation kind of as this linear chronological book. Thirdly, you have to understand that Revelation is part of a genre of literature that is referred to as apocalyptic literature. Revelation means apocalypse. It means to unveil. That's what apocalypse means, to unveil something, to reveal something. And in apocalyptic literature, people are 
They're often represented as animals. Historical events are often represented in the form of natural phenomena like earthquakes and floods and all of that. Colors and numbers in apocalyptic literature, colors and numbers have meaning that's attached to them. And you see that same kind of apocalyptic language in uh, books like Daniel and Ezekiel and parts of Isaiah and and Zechariah and Joel, that same kind of apocalyptic imagery. Now, you may be asking, like, what's the point of all of this apocalypse? I can understand a little bit better when I read through the Gospel of John or I read through the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus or the church at Philippi. And, but I get into this apocalyptic literature and it's just like a little bit more confusing. I get overwhelmed by like, so what's the point of this dramatic imagery? Why does there have to be any stuff in the Bible? Why can't it all be like the letters that Paul wrote or the Gospels or just the narratives of the Old Testament? Like, why does it have to have all this dramatic imagery? Why can't this letter be more like Paul? Why, why does God use this to communicate, you know, his truth? Well, one of the things that's been helpful for me in kind of understanding that is to think about apocalyptic literature in the same way that you think about poetry or music or even movies or novels or whatever it is. Like the purpose of those art forms are not just to engage the mind. It's also to ignite the spirit. Like the purpose of those art forms, the goal is not just for us to learn something. It's for us to feel something. You don't read a poem just to get information. You don't, you don't watch a movie just to get information. You don't sing a song or listen to a song just to say, oh, I just want to get some more information. No, you don't want that to just ignite the mind. You, you listen to a song or you sing a song or you read a poem or you watch a movie to ignite the spirit so that you feel something. You want to walk away from that poem feeling something. The person who wrote that poem wants you to walk away feeling something, not just knowing something. And that's the way apocalyptic literature works. That's what it's all about. It ignites the spirit. It helps us to feel something. And when, think about this, when you're going through really, really hard times, when your world gets turned upside down, when life doesn't make sense, all of that, like you don't just need to hear something, you need to feel something. Like when your life just got turned upside down and someone comes to you and go, oh, it'll be okay. It's just like, that doesn't help. Like I thank you for the information. You know, thank you for the information. Or someone comes and says, well, you know, God is still in control. Thank you very much for the information. Like, I really appreciate it. But I don't just need information. Like, it's not just that my mind needs to be engaged in the middle of the pain that I'm going through. I need to feel something. I need to feel the presence of God. I need to feel that God is in control. I need to feel that God is winning in this situation. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's about helping these people, these churches who are going through incredible persecution, to feel that God is in control, to feel that God wins, to feel that all things are not lost. And that's why God uses it to speak to our spirit. Now, here's what I want to do. That's kind of like the setting to help you kind of understand the book as a whole. I want to wrap up today by looking really briefly at the unique message that Jesus has for each of the seven 
churches. And we're going to go through this in lightning, lightning speed. So you get to chapter one of Revelation, kind of the introduction to the letter. I read part of that. Chapters two and three is a message that Jesus has for each of the seven churches. He has an individual message for each church, and he addresses each church with the message. Here's what I want you to notice as we kind of rapid fire go through these, is that to every church, there's something that he commends, something that he says, wow, here's where I see God at work in your lives. Here's something we're celebrating. Here's something awesome that's going on. And then he also um, condemns something. Uh, calls them to repentance, says, here's some things that need to change. Here's some things that aren't right. So there's this kind of celebration of like what God is doing. And then there's this confront, uh, confrontation of like, here's some stuff that needs to change in your life. And so kind of listen to that as we kind of go through these. And we'll go through them really quick. First, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? This is Jesus saying this to John, who then passes it on to these churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You found them to be false. That's the, kind of, uh, the commendation. Like That's the thing that's awesome, that's good, that's going on. Yet, Jesus says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So Jesus commends the church in Ephesus on their sound biblical doctrine. Your theology is straight, Jesus is saying. Your doctrine is straight. You can tell false teachers from true teachers. Like you can discern all of that. That's awesome. But they don't love God and they don't love others the way they used to. They have lost their first love. They have lost their passion for Jesus. And it's this reminder that it's possible to believe all the right things. To have the right theology, to have the right doctrine, to be able to win every theological argument that you get into, and to not have a healthy relationship with God or with those that God has put into your life. That it's possible to have all the knowledge right, all the doctrine right, all the theology right, and not love right. That's what he's saying to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? I know your afflictions and your poverty. You are rich, that's the commendation. You're rich, you're spiritually rich in the midst of all of this. But do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. So Jesus commends the church in Smyrna on their spiritual richness in the midst of their financial poverty, in the midst of all the struggles that they're going through. But he confronts them on the fact they're becoming paralyzed by fear. And so he encourages them to keep trusting him, even though it looks like everything is out of control. It's this reminder that fear is, yes, a normal part of life, but we can become so paralyzed by fear, so fearful about the stuff that's happening to us or happening around us or that we think is about to happen, hasn't even happened yet, but we think it's about to happen, that it just shapes our whole life, it just paralyzes our life, that we begin to walk in fear, we begin to live in fear, everything we do is driven by fear, everything we don't do is driven by fear, our whole life is just consumed by fear, and Jesus saying, I want to set you free from all of that. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this, Jesus says. You remain true to my name. This is the, uh, the, the commendation. 
You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have these things against you. And this is what he confronts. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balaam to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols, by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus commends the church in Pergamum on the fact that they hung with him. They didn't turn their back on him in the midst of some really, really scary stuff that they went through. But he confronts them on the fact that they've gotten really sloppy in their theology. They have embraced some teaching that just isn't true. They've embraced some teaching that flies in the face of the gospel. They've embraced some teaching that is counter to why Jesus died on the cross in the first place. And it's a reminder that theology does matter. It's not the only thing, as Jesus points out to the church in Ephesus when he says, you got your theology right, you believe all the right things, you just don't love very much. You don't love me, you don't love the people around you, and, and so it doesn't matter if you got your theology right, like there's got to be more than that. Here, he's saying kind of the opposite. He's saying, okay, for you, like you've been faithful, you've hung in there and all that, but your theology, you're just not paying attention to your theology, that you are believing things and you are teaching things that are not rooted in the truth of Scripture. It's a reminder that theology matters, that you can't just say, I love Jesus, and it doesn't matter what I believe, or it doesn't matter what you believe. Like, just love Jesus, and everything will be fine. No, it does matter, because it's good theology. It's good theology rooted in the truth of Scripture that helps us to understand what it means to love Jesus, and how we actually live that out on a daily basis. Like if you don't have an understanding of scripture, if you don't have good theology, you don't have good doctrine, then you just turn love, loving Jesus into whatever little subjective thing you want it to be. So you go, I love Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means whatever I want it to mean. No, it doesn't mean whatever you want it to mean. Like scripture is what helps us to understand what it means to love Jesus. And what it means to live that out on a daily basis. And then to the angel of the church in Thyatira, Jesus says, right. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you ever did at first. That's the, con uh, the co uh, commendation. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So Jesus commends the church in Thyatira for their good works. Like it's a church where, you know, they're serving, they're doing, they're giving, they're making a difference in the world, all of that stuff. But then he confronts them on the fact that they have embraced an unhealthy and unbiblical sexual ethic. And they are living these morally compromising lives personally. It's a reminder that following Jesus is not an either or thing. It's a both and thing. That following Jesus is not just about pursuing social justice. It's also about pursuing personal piety. 
It's not just about what we're doing to change the world. Yes, Jesus is concerned about what we're doing to change the world, but that following Jesus is not just about what we're doing to change the world. It's about what the spirit of Jesus is doing in us to change us. Like God doesn't just want us to change the world. He wants to change us as well. So you can be super focused on personal piety, on like being in the yes position of God and, and saying, God, I want you to work in my life. I want your spirit to work in my life. And you can completely ignore Jesus' call to justice. And that's kind of the church I grew up in where there was a lot of focus on personal piety, not a lot of focus on like pursuing justice in the world, but the opposite is true as well. You can also work for justice, be focused on that, and at the same time, live a life of moral compromise. And Jesus says that following him is not one or the other. It's not either or, it's both and. It's being about the business of changing the world, but it's also being about the business of letting the spirit of Christ change us. And then to the angel of the church in Sardis, Jesus says, write this, John. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. That's the only nice thing he can say, actually, about the church is that you have a really good reputation. Like, your reputation is awesome. Like, you have a really good reputation, the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. So wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. The only thing Jesus commends in Sardis is the fact that they, they have this really, really good reputation. Everyone looks at the church at Sardis and goes, ah, oh, it's a church that's alive. It's a church that vibrant. It's a church that's doing things. A church that's making a difference. All of that. But in reality, they're spiritually dead. They're just putting on a good show. The show doesn't reflect the reality. And it's a reminder that Jesus is not so concerned about what people think is going on inside of us, that Jesus is concerned about what is really going on inside of us. He's not so concerned about our reputation as he is about our character. And in a world that is obsessed, <laughs> obsessed with cultivating and curating and managing reputation. Jesus is saying, focus on what's going on in here and stop worrying about what other people think is going on in here. You know, the cultivating and curating of reputation is about worrying about, obsessing about, being focused on what other people think is going on in here. And Jesus says, that's not what I, what I want you focused on. I want you focused on what's really going on in here. Then to the last two churches, Jesus addresses them in a little bit different kind of way. So for the first five, it's like, here's what I command and here's what I confront and all that. But now um, it's a little different for the last two churches. One of them, the church in Philadelphia, he only has positive things to say because they have the Eagles and the Phillies and all of that. And uh, 
And then the church in Laodicea, he only has negative things to say. So here's what he said. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, and yet you have kept my word, and you've not denied my name. I'm coming soon, so hold on. Just hold on. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus' basic message is, I know this has been an incredibly tough season. I know you're exhausted. (laughs) I know every fiber within you causes you to want to give up, and I get that. But don't. Don't give up. Hold on. Hold on to what you have, Jesus says. Hold on to your faith. Hold on to me. Just hold on. And I think it's a reminder that sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is just not give up. Sometimes the most spiritual thing is just to say, I'm not going to give up. Not going to give up on my family. I'm not going to give up on my marriage. I'm not going to give up on my ministry. I'm not going to give up on my relationships. I'm not going to give up on my faith. I'm not going to give up on myself. And I think for some of you, like, and you know, given what you're going through, maybe who needs to hear this the most, but I think for some who are here today, or maybe some of you that are watching online, like that's the word from the Lord that you need to hear today is, I know you're tired. I know you're exhausted. I know it's been a tough season. I know everything within you causes you to want to give up. But don't give up. Don't give up. Don't walk away. Hold on. Hold on to your marriage. Hold on to your family. Hold on to that relationship. Hold on to your faith. Just hold on because there's a crown, Jesus says, that awaits. So just hold on. And then to the angel of the church in Laodicea, He says, write this, I know your deeds, you're neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So the basic message to the church in Laodicea is your apathy and your mediocrity is killing you, and it's undermining the mission of the church. It's undermining the mission and the advance of the kingdom. So get get passionate about something. Like give yourself fully to something. Or I'm not going to be able to use you to change the world. I'm not going to be able to use you to advance this mission that I'm on in this world. Just get passionate about something. It's a reminder that one of the things that undermines what God wants to do in our life is an attitude of just good enough. (laughs) That sometimes like the The most damaging thing to our own life and the most damaging thing to the mission of the church and the advancement of the kingdom is just this attitude 
of just good enough. Yeah, I know it's not awesome, but it's not terrible. It's good enough. Like my marriage is good enough. My prayer life is good enough. It's not awesome. It's not terrible, but it's, it's good enough. My, my worship is good enough. It's not awesome. It's not terrible, but it's, it's good enough. My time studying God's word, like it's good enough. It's my ministry, the stuff that I'm called to do. It's like, it's good. I know it's not awesome. It's not terrible. It's better than a lot of other people. Like it's good enough. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I don't want you to live your life just kind of, kind of moving through life, kind of coasting through life with this kind of good enough attitude. I want you to get passionate about something. I want you to give yourself to something. I want you to lay your life down for something. And, and this idea of good enough, this mediocrity, this lukewarmness that he's calling out, it's not about performance. Like it's not about you need to, you need to perform better in your worship or you need to perform better in your ministry. This is not about like the, the quality of your performance. This is about the passion with which you do it. That's what Jesus is saying. I want you to get passionate about worshiping me. I want you to get passionate about following me. I want you to get passionate about serving me. I want you to get passionate about the relationships that I play. I just want you to be passionate about the things that I've placed in your life. Now, here's what's interesting, is that Jesus concludes almost every message to each of these seven churches with an invitation uh, to repent. Gets to the end, and we didn't read each one, um, but he gets to the end, basically, of each one, and he says, repent. It's an invitation to acknowledge um, something's not right, something needs to change. An invitation to go in a different direction. That's what repentance is. It's just going in a different direction, saying, this is not the direction I want to keep going in. I'm going to go in a different direction. And to experience God's forgiveness and his grace in their lives. It's a wonderful invitation. Sometimes we get all nervous about talking about repentance. This is a great invitation. Head in a different direction, experience God's grace, forgiveness, acknowledge the stuff that needs to be acknowledged, all of that. And that's what he gives them the invitation to do. And we're gonna, we're gonna end uh, the service today by doing something that we did every week prior to COVID and we kind of stopped it just because of being close and all of that. And uh, uh, we're going we're gonna to start using our crosses. You've probably seen the notes that already been placed, the prayer requests on the cross. And for those of you that are maybe a little new to this, um, that we just, and, you, and as we move forward next week and following, you know, you don't have to wait till the end of the service to make your way to a cross and put a prayer request on there. You can do it anytime. And people will pray for that prayer request. And it's an awesome thing that we do. But here's what I want and you can put whatever you want on the cross today, whatever you feel like God is leading you to do, whatever you need prayer for. But here's what I want to invite you to do as you think about that. All of us, in some respects, are like the churches of Revelation. We are this complex mixture. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or you haven't yet made that decision, you're still trying to figure all this out and connect the dots, all of us are this complex mixture of things to be celebrated, where God's at work, where we see God at work, 
where he's changed us, where he's provided for us, where he's healed us, whatever it is, this things to be celebrated, behaviors that we are no longer involved with, attitudes we no longer have, like all this stuff. Like all of us are this complex mixture of these things to be celebrated, but also these things that need to be changed. Like areas of our life that just, we need to repent and experience God's forgiveness and head in a different direction. And nobody is like one or the other. Like we tend to simplify people into like, oh, good people, bad people. Here's the people that have tons of stuff God's doing. Here's the people that need to repent. No, no, no. We're all a complex mixture of all of that. And so today as we worship, I want to invite you um, during our time of worship, make your way to these crosses, put prayer requests there, put whatever it is. But maybe one of the things that you want to put on the cross today is just something where you just want to celebrate what God's done in your life. Just like I talked to a bunch of people as they were coming in and, and, and folks leaving the service, the other service, and just telling me things that have happened over the last several months, just things to be celebrated. God at work in just amazing ways. And maybe there's some things you just want to put on the cross. Just say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for where I've seen you at work, what you're doing in my life, and these are things I want to celebrate. But maybe there's also some things that you want to place there of just like, God, here's some things that need to change. I need to see your redeeming, restoring, redemptive power. It worked in my life. And I want you to feel free, whatever it is that God is leading you to put on the cross, just to make your way, no better place to be than at the foot of the cross, to lay those out to Jesus, to just place those there. Things that need to change, the things that you want to celebrate, whatever it is, just trust it, trust it, trust it to God. God, we are so thankful for your goodness and your grace, the opportunity to come to you. We're so thankful that you are a God that is at work in our lives. That the messages that you gave to churches thousands of years ago are messages that speak to our heart right now. 2021. And so Lord, just free us up in this time of worship. Just free us up to just come to the foot of the cross. Just free us up to bring to you whatever it is that you want us to bring to you today. May we be set free to do that. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Continue to move.